This morning, we are continuing through our series in the book of Exodus called Into the Wilderness. But before we dive in, um, I want to take some time to just drop back here and and just, again, remind you that this is all what we're looking at here in the plagues. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to wrap these plagues up, but just to remind you and remember that it is a declaration of God's sovereignty as he delivers his people from bondage and difficulty. And often, as we've said before, God doesn't just deliver you from difficulty, trial, tribulation. He often delivers us through difficulty, trial, and tribulation. He doesn't always deliver you from the fire, but he does for his people called by his name whom have placed their faith and their hope in him. He does, in fact, deliver you through the fire. Amen? And there's power in this, and there's actually love that's cultivated. And so we're going to dive into the sermon, the book of Exodus. It is the true story of how God delivered his people of promise by drawing them out of slavery and into their identity as sons and daughters. But again, this is way more than just an ancient story. This is a prophetic type and a shadow of how all of creation has been and will continue to unfold until its ultimate deliverance with the return of Jesus Christ. And so in order uh, to get the most out of this series, you're going to need to put on those spiritual gospel glasses, right? So often people live in a world of black and white and, they, and even mostly, honestly, gray. That the spiritual gospel glasses are going to bring color even to the Old Testament and understanding who Jesus is, what he's done for you, what he's provided to you, and how he's called us then to walk with him, even on this side of eternity in, in heaven. And so when we do, when we put these gospel glasses on, when that veil is lifted You're going to see that this entire story, Genesis to Revelation, has always been pointing blatantly and powerfully to Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding sort of the potential last days, right? Or the end times. But even the book of Revelation makes it clear that the way God delivered his people out of the grip of Egypt here in Exodus will be the way he delivers everyone from the grip of sin and death and the devil himself. So we get some insights, very practical and very relevant insights into our current circumstance from this book here. So this morning, we're going to cover chapter 9 through 12, okay? So buckle up. Um, And then we're going to hone in, though, on uh, the most central event in the entire Old Testament, That's what we're looking at this morning. The most central event in the entire Old Testament. It's become known as the Passover. And so what I want you to see this morning is that this Passover event is a direct arrow pointing blatantly at the most central event in all of eternity, which is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so for the rest of our time, we're going to cover, like I said, the last four plagues that God uses to deliver Israel from the lowercase g gods, okay, got it? Gods with a lowercase g, the gods of Egypt, and then we're going to close with some practical application, 
And so, again, this may feel like a lot of information, so uh, more than anything, I want you to see how this story and every story throughout the Bible blatantly points to one truth, and that's that it is all, say all, about Jesus. All of it. So if you get nothing else from this morning, if you're just like, you know, overwhelmed by the, the, the hail and the locusts and the darkness and all the craziness and chaos and it seems like what is going on, here's what I want you to get. If you get nothing else from this morning, this is what I want you to get. It's all about Jesus and he has come that you may have abundant life. Not just then, but even now. All right? Say abundant life. The real question, though, is do you believe that? Do you really believe that he desires for you to have abundant life? Really. Not just in theory, but here. Like, do you believe, first of all, that it's all about Jesus? Like, even if I say that it's all about Jesus, everything is about Jesus, does that bother you? I mean, honestly, do you want it to be all about Jesus? Because I think sometimes if we're honest, we're like, yeah, I think it might, might, might be all about me. I think maybe it should be all about me. Like, who is Jesus? It's all about him. Like, isn't this all about me? Isn't he all about me? See how it gets twisted a little bit? And it can lift us up in a way that kind of makes us a little skeptical or we get tricked into thinking like, okay, uh, uh, I don't know, maybe he's, he's trying to sell me something. This is the world we live in, right? And so the truth is, is that the only reason people don't believe this, it isn't because the evidence isn't there. It's, it's not about evidence. Now, if you've got issues or you've got like, you know, you've got some head intellectual questions, bring it on. Let's talk about it. I love to talk about these things, especially if it clears the weeds off of the path that lead you to Jesus so you can see him clearly. Let's go there. But at the end of the day, do not be confused or deceived. It's always a heart issue. Always a heart issue. The evidence is there if we will look. But like Pharaoh, as we're going to see and as we have seen, the reality is, more often than not, we don't want it to be true. We don't necessarily want to believe. Because see, if he's king, then you're not king. If he's savior, then you need to be saved. And that's offensive to a deeply prideful and self-centered world. Like, this is where that hardening of heart takes place. Like, do you believe that he loves you? Do you believe that he has the best intentions for your life? Do you believe that he has come that you may have eternal and abundant life? Or do you believe that he's holding out on you for his own selfish acclaim? That it's all a trick. Now, it is about his acclaim. The best thing you could ever do, though, is worship him. The best thing that could, you were created for his glory. And so this is the reality that we're in. So maybe, 
you know, our hearts sometimes, man, especially if you've been wounded or hurt or maybe you've been tricked before, like our hearts can draw back. Maybe we'll be dismissed, abandoned, forgotten, unseen, even enslaved. The big question on the table for us all this morning is do you believe that he's trustworthy? Or do you think that if you trust in him, follow him, obey him, that your life will be somehow worse? Now, I didn't say you wouldn't face difficulty or it would be uncomfortable. You just about guarantee that he's going to lead us into places that make us uncomfortable. Because he, part of his deliverance is that he delivers us from ourselves. And there's power in this, but it's so good. He's so good, and it's so worth it. And the, the reality is that that's actually the root of all sin. It's a lack of trusting that he's good. So this isn't just for the non-Christian. This message, guys, the, this, this, it, it, God is continually uncovering areas in our lives where we're hesitant to trust him. It's a part of being drawn out of those counterfeit identities that enslave us and into the unconditional covenantal identity that we have in Christ. Sin happens when we look to the counterfeits of this world to provide something that on some level we think God either can't or won't provide for us. So we look for it in other areas, whether it's greed Skimming off the top at work because we're like, ah, you know, if I do it God's way, I'll be broke. Right? Or maybe I deserve this because, you know, I'm really entitled to it because of all these other things. And God's just like, that's not what I, how I called you to live. This is all these things like sleeping with someone who we're not married to. Indulging in pornography. All of these things, they're like these sinful compromises, no matter how big or how small, it's ultimately a result of one very tempting thought. God is not enough for you. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. You need to do it your way because his way, meh. He's not looking out for you. He's not trustworthy. Isn't that how we got into this mess in the beginning? Isn't that how the devil tempted Eve? So when I, when I discipline my kids, I actually, it's something that I think about a lot. Like when, when my kids do something wrong and, and, and we have those conversations that sometimes goes a little further than conversations, and, and we enter into this like mode, I have three small children, um, 10, 7, and 5. And, and when I discipline them, I can, when I can see that they don't agree with the discipline, you know what I mean? Like, like you know, they stick that lick, lip out like I'm a victim, you know, like I'm a victim of this. This is unfair, right? They don't really, you know, they do that thing. Um, I, I always stop and ask them if they think that they want to be happy more than I want them to be happy. You should think about that. But seriously, do you think... That you want to be happy more than God wants you to be happy. Now, for me, the teenage years haven't hit in our home, and so uh, 
whenever we have that conversation, our, our little children, they still kind of, they, they kind of take it in. And that childlike faith, I can see it kick in. It's still there. And so far, they've always said, yes, I do think, Daddy, that you want me to be happy even more than I want to be happy, right? And it's a beautiful thing. Pray for me <laughs> and my wife. Uh, right now, because I, 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 every time that happens, I'm like, how long, Lord? Let's... <laughs> Um, but there's a trust there, right? And, and, and they know that this is because I love them. Only a son or a daughter who trusts in their father can say that. They can even grasp that. A slave, good luck. A taskmaster, an employee beholden to you, a boss, nope. They need to be delivered into that kind of faith. And see, that's the Father's heart, and that's what God wants us all to see. Even in the way he delivers Israel in the Old Testament from Egypt, all of this is on display. And so I want you to turn with me to Exodus 9. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 13, and we're going to roll through this, all right? So here we go. A lot of scripture this morning. Let's keep our eyes on Jesus. All right. Then the Lord said to Moses, so we've, we've got, uh, I think we're six plagues in right now in this story. So Exodus 9, 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. So previous to this, we've seen these plagues happen on all of Egypt, but they, they, they've been a plague on the river. They've been a plague on the land. They've been a plague on um, even the air. And so here we see that he says, I'm going to send all of my plagues on you yourself. And the Hebrew here is literally, I will send my plagues on your heart. That's important. And on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put, my hand and, uh, put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Verse 20, then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Now, I want you to notice, many are starting to take this seriously. And God even gives them a way to avoid it. This is the first time he does that. He gives them a warning and says, like, here's your way out. All right? Like, this is round seven. And honestly, at this point, anyone who ignores this warning does not want Yahweh, the Lord, to be uppercase God, uppercase G God. They don't want him to be at this point. This, it, it's illogical for them at this point to not heed this warning. 
And so this plague is a judgment on the heart. Verse 21 could easily be translated even into saying, whoever did not set his heart to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So there's a stronghold happening that's way beyond reason here. Again, you show me an unbeliever and I'll show you somebody with a deep heart bias against the Lord. Even if they don't recognize it, guys, it's there. That's why it's a heartfelt repentance. It's not just an intellectual assent because this thing's about relationship. And there's more than enough evidence. Even Romans 2 makes it clear that everyone is without excuse. Verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast, every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down, ran, ran, it ran, it was running, and fire ran down to the earth, and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all of the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. So there is a differentiation. There's a set apart. There's a protection happening. I want you to remember, each plague so far has represented a sort of like decreation event. All right? So a judgment upon the God's lowercase g of Egypt and a reorienting toward the true God, uppercase g, and, and his authority over all. That's what's happening here. And so the staff of authority that Moses and Aaron had was raised first over the waters of Egypt, and then the first two plagues resulted, and then the staff was against the dust of the earth or the land, and then the next three plagues resulted, and then we saw a plague on the air, okay? And now here we are, we have a kind of shift. Here Moses is told to stretch out his staff toward heaven. That's interesting. And so the result then is literally fire and brimstone that rains down upon the earth, not unlike the judgment that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19, straight from the hand of God. Now, I think we also get some spiritual insight into what's happening here from the book of Revelation. Like the Apostle John, in, the, in Revelation, he's given, we, we kind of opened with this a bit, and John's given a, a heavenly vision of what has been and what is and then what will be. And so Revelation 8, verse 1, it says that uh, when the Lamb um, opened the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw... The seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now, the imagery here is pretty breathtaking. It can even be confusing. Here's what's happening. You've got a situation here where you get an image and we see that the lamb is opening these seals that unveil the deliverance of all creation. And in one of the seals that he opens, uh, you, you get these angels, and they're standing 
at an altar, and they have a golden censer. And a golden a censer is one of those things that's like it got incense in it. You ever seen like priests and stuff, or like you, you see these guys walking around? They've got this. It's like smoking and stuff. Stuff's rising out of it, you know. Well, the idea here is that earlier in Revelation, you have a picture of uh, martyred saints. Christians who have been killed for the word of God, and they're crying out to God, and they're saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long will you endure the injustice and the fallenness of this creation? And God tells them, wait a little bit longer, okay? And their, their prayers now, this is what it's saying, these prayers are coming from the altar, mixed and mingled with the prayers of all Christians throughout eternity, and God is going like this to the incense that rises to him big breath so much so that it even talks about there being silence in heaven as he fills his lungs mixed and mingled with the prayers of his people and you know what comes next what happens when you breathe deep and so what we see in the next section here is that that the picture then is this throwing down to earth. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, earthquakes. The imagery here is God breathing in the sweet aroma of the prayers of his people, and their prayers rise like incense from the altar, like a sweet aroma filling the nostrils of God himself, and he takes it in every prayer, every cry, every longing for deliverance and a new creation. Divine lungs ready to unleash. What comes next are seven trumpet blasts from heaven. Hail, fire, even blood is thrown down upon the earth. Seven blasts that echo what we're seeing here in the Exodus plagues. And remember, it's all an answer to prayer. God's divine breath of deliverance is intermingled in the righteous prayers of his people, the cries of his people, because it's all a part of creation's deliverance. How does Exodus begin? The people cried out, and he heard their cry. Global deliverance is prefigured here on a local level in Egypt. You see, people tend to ask how could a good God allow so much evil in this world. But then when God does something about evil, they say, how could a good God cause so much destruction? You know, remember, this world is jacked up. And he cares and he loves. The very fact that it's not total destruction yet is actually pure mercy designed to reveal our need for a repentance and salvation. It's because he loves us. That's mercy. It's mercy. Verse 27. Back to Exodus. Then Pharaoh Okay, so we've gone from Revelation, you tracking with me? So we've gone from like the end of the Bible to back to the beginning. All right, you with me? All right, Exodus. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. Okay, so the hail has hit, it's dropped in, in fury. And so Pharaoh says, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. Y'all didn't see that one coming, did you? This is Pharaoh talking. I have sinned, the Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So this is a real and honest confession from Pharaoh. Verse 29. 
Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the Lord is the, that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So in other words, there's a huge difference between confession and repentance. It's a big difference. Like I often encounter this with so many people who are quick to confess their sins, but never really repent of it, never really trust in the Lord. And, and, and I'm not talking about like, you know, getting better, grabbing your bootstraps, uh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and just being better morally. I'm talking about deep conviction that God is who he says he is and he loves you and you've sinned against him. And that his mercy is real and his grace sufficient. You don't get that revelation, all you're going to do is confess that you're horrible and wallow in it and continue to operate in sin. You see, while confession does not, uh, I'm sorry, confession does lead to repentance and belief, Right? It's not the same thing. And Moses knows it. It's not about how bad you feel or how contrite you can appear. It's about truly beholding the Lord for who he is and trusting him to transform your life because he's good. And you trust him. He's trustworthy. True confession, repentance, which means to return, to turn away and turn toward. Confession, repentance, and belief is not confession, I'm sorry. Repent, I'll do better. Then belief, it doesn't look like, look how great I am now. So often people present Christianity like that. That is works righteousness. It's a false gospel. True, true gospel-centered Christianity, true beholding Jesus, loving Jesus is it's confession. I'm sorry for my sin. I recognize that I am a sinner. And then repentance. I don't want it. I don't want, I, I want you, God. I need you. Without you, I'm dead in my own sin, and I can't get out of this. I want to be where you are. Help me. And then belief. I now see how worthy and holy you are. Fill me with your spirit to be with you and where you are forever, starting now. I trust that your grace is enough for me, that though I fall, I will stand up in your strength and walk with you. That's Christianity. See, true transformation happens in worship, guys, not shame. Remember, worship really means worth ship. If you are operating in a shame, pride shame spectrum, you will not truly repent. You'll just confess and wallow. It's not until you behold his worth, his beauty, and his capacity and sufficiency to save you that you will begin to walk with him and he transform you. Back to Exodus 9. You still with me? So the plague of hail is raining down. You're like, how'd you get all that from the plague of hail? <laughs> this is what it says. The plague of hail is raining down. Verse 31. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the inmer 
were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So, so I still see here another picture of God's mercy upon Egypt. Do you see it? Like they deserve total destruction, and yet God still provides for them. Because the wheat wasn't killed, they still will have bread. And so Pharaoh's bitter heart, though, takes God's mercy and turns it into another reason to resist him. Verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And so the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord has spoken through Moses. So by this point, though, even the people of Egypt are realizing that Pharaoh's obstinance is about himself and not the good of Egypt. They see how illogical this actually is. And so they're recognizing that Pharaoh is not a trustworthy king, and yet the Lord is offering them warning and even mercy, even as Pharaoh's heart continues to harden. Verse 10, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So God's not playing around here. He's sovereign over it all. He's not really in a battle with anybody. His plan is flawless, and he's not missing a beat in his plan. He's got this. He knows what he's doing. Everything is playing out exactly the way he designed it to, and yet, and yet, that in no way diminishes the total 100% responsibility of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Or Israel. Verse 3. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on the earth until this day." Then he turned and he went out from Pharaoh. Again, this plague is heavenly in nature. Now, that does not mean that it is pleasant. When we hear heavenly, we're like, aw. Right? But this means that it's from the heavenly realm. Okay? Which is also a part of creation. God made the heavens and the earth. That doesn't just mean like the dirt in the sky. There's more going on. Revelation 8 and 9 depict a very similar scene, actually, of judgment upon the earth raining down from the heavenly realm. Revelation gives us that pulled back veil so that we can see in the heavenly realm. That's what's happening there. That's why I'm quoting from it so much. So each judgment is unleashed. Again, we talked about this, Revelation 8 and 9, all right? That, that each of these judgments is unleashed via a trumpet. And what follows are things like hailfire and even locusts. So Revelation makes it clear, though, that these locusts aren't just insects. They are demons unleashed on a spiritual warpath. Revelation 9, verse 6 says this, And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. 
that's heavy. That's really intense, right? And that's a description of what happens when the locusts are unleashed. So this is a highly demonic plague, and yet God's people, sealed by his spirit, are spared, just as Israel is spared from these locusts back in Exodus. It doesn't mean that the temptation isn't there. Hear me. It doesn't mean that, that, that those people don't deal with those intrusive thoughts. And in this world, that's a thing. It doesn't mean that that's not there. But for those who hope in the Holy Spirit and they rely upon him for their peace, say peace, and security, say security, these temptations have no authority. And remember, peace is shalom. It's wholeness. It's holistic well-being, mind, body, soul, all of these things. And it goes beyond circumstance. But for those without this true security in Christ, especially for the Egyptians, all that they looked to for their security is being utterly destroyed. It would have been one of those moments when you feel like nothing else could go wrong, and then you find out way more can go wrong because it does. Like the hail's already destroyed so much, but then every morsel gets totally consumed by these locusts. And yet the truth is, like the hail, this was all aimed at the hearts of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But the hearts of those who are secure in the Lord despite circumstances, even despite emotions that come up, our firm foundation is in his word and who he is and who he says we are. That's the power of knowing God. Verse 7. Then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And so Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? <laughs> well, caveat there. Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. Everybody. We will go with our sons and daughters and our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you're asking. So now he's telling Moses what he's asking him to do. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. So Pharaoh's clearly unhinged here, okay? He's a law unto himself, which means he's a lawless man, a man of lawlessness, which is how the scriptures actually describe the Antichrist, okay? And so he continues to, or, or the Antichrist spirit, I should say, is clearly on him. There will, there, there's a picture of the Antichrist, and then there's the Antichrist spirit, which is already and has been in the world, okay? So he continues to try to maintain control and negotiate here. Now, he says, you can go, but you can't take your children. Pharaoh's clearly not learned his lesson here, and he's become darkened and hardened in heart and mind. And so the locusts come, and they consume everything that, that the hail has left, and they came in such numbers that the whole land was darkened. They black out the sun. Verse 16, then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. He's, he's asking for forgiveness. Remove this death from, this is Pharaoh talking. 
So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. I want you to notice the language here. Remove this death from me. Not from my people, not from my land. Remove this death from me. The torment has only driven him deeper into himself. Again, these locusts represent the torment of spiritual death. Now, I want to comment here. Again, anxiety and depression, they're extremely prevalent in our society. Those feelings are not signs that you have been judged or uh, possessed by a demon. Let me say that again. If you're struggling with depression or anxiety in this society, that is not a sign that you have been judged by God or possessed by a demon. In fact, it's more opportunity for you to look to where your actual hope comes from. Not your emotions, not your circumstance, but Christ alone. He is the lifter of our heads. And there's a depth produced and cultivated in us even in those seasons that goes beyond feeling. It is a battle. I'm not saying that the demonic isn't a part of that sometimes, many times. But it doesn't mean that you're in a hopeless state. That's a lie. Okay? It's a battle. And on some level, on this side of heaven, we all must fight in that battle. Some of the most godly men, guys, some of the most godly leaders throughout Christian history have been very vocal about this struggle and this battle that they engage in. Charles Spurgeon, very vocal about his battle. Tim Keller, Louis Giglio, John Piper, King David. And as we'll see, Moses himself, as we'll see later in this series, they all confess to having real bouts with depression. What sets God's people apart isn't the lack of temptation, it's in the indulgence. It's in where they place their identity, where you place your hope and where you fix your attention. Pharaoh's attention was on himself. Moses' attention was on the Lord. And here's here he's even presented praying again for his enemy. It doesn't get much more selfless than that. Amen? You guys with me? This is heavy. This is, we're, we're, we're getting into this thing. I told you. And so Moses goes out and he pleads with the Lord again on behalf of Pharaoh again. And I wonder what that prayer was like, right? You ever prayed for somebody and you're like, this isn't going to work? You know? <laughs> God, I know he doesn't mean it. You know he doesn't mean it, but he's asking, so would you answer his prayers, this prayer, in patience? Please remove this death from Pharaoh and Egypt. Verse 19, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong east wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. Did you hear that? A darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt, three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. That's interesting. 
Three days of darkness likened to death. No rising of the sun. No sight, just darkness. Remember, this is a society whose great God was the sun god, Ra. He rose each morning. Remember, Pharaoh would rise each morning as well. This is kind of like his like, quiet time was to go to the banks of the Nile and worship. So Ra, their great conqueror of darkness, has himself been darkened. Defeated. Verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. Like he's not getting it. He's constantly, Pharaoh still thinks this is a negotiation, as if he has any authority over the Lord whatsoever. Verse 25, but Moses said, you must also let us have the sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. This is, for we must take them to serve the Lord our God, and we do not know with what we should serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see my face you shall die. So Pharaoh's madness and depravity here solidified, okay? Verse 29, Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. And then, follow this, we get a sneak peek into Moses' interaction with God, even in the midst of this conversation. Right? You ever been in a conversation with somebody and you're like praying? That's what's happening. Okay? The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt after he will let you go from here. After he will let, afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So while Pharaoh's heart is hardened, okay, the rest of Egypt is watching this. And all of Israel, all that they had asked for was given to them. Probably because they were like, take it, whatever you want, just take it and go. Okay, because they're watching this whole thing go down. So Pharaoh's depravity here knows no bounds. And his obstinance begins to really upset Moses now, because Moses knows what's coming. Verse 4, so Moses said, right, so remember Pharaoh has been like, go away, get out of my sight. If you see me again, I'll kill you, okay? Moses says, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Well, I read that like that. Moses is upset. Verse 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Pharaoh did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month 
shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Now, do you see this? That the release from captivity by the blood of the sacrificial lamb is to become so central to Israel's identity that it even marks the beginning of a new calendar for them. Much like, did you guys know that the Sabbath like, it has been on Saturday and now we gather together and worship on Sunday? It's like a calendar shift because something dramatic took place, right? God was, uh, Christ was resurrected on a Sunday morning. So we gather on a Sunday morning. Something very similar has taken place here, but for their entire calendar. It's the first, it's a new day for them. Deliverance by the blood of the Lamb. But you just see how this is all a type and a prophetic shadow of what's coming even further down the line. And so we've seen nine plagues so far, all designed for Pharaoh in Egypt and Israel and even the rest of the world to know that the Lord, Yahweh, the uppercase G, God, is who he says he is. That there's no one like him and even to see how he delivers his people from bondage. So the Lord gave Moses and Aaron instructions that they then passed on to Israel. Take an unblemished lamb per household and set it aside. Care for it for two weeks. That's important, actually. Then on the 14th day, that's two weeks, everyone will come together and kill their lambs at twilight. It was supposed to be heartbreaking, not cold or distant. This was a lamb. It was cute. They loved it. Care for a lamb for two weeks. Good luck with your heart not being attached to it when it dies. Right? Like, seriously, I got a puppy, and I'm like, I stepped on her tail the other day, and I was like, ah, oh, you know. <laughs> this is what's happening here, okay? <laughs> Exodus 12, verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. Now, many people who hear this and they're like, okay, we just went full cult right now. This sounds like some like crazy pagan stuff, right? What but the reality is, is the exact opposite of that. It's all significant. This is a ceremonial meal, and it all had meaning. The bitter herbs represented the bitterness of their slavery. God wanted them to remember this. The unleavened bread meant that there was an urgency. There's no time for the bread to be leavened, and we're about to see this. There was a need to be ready, to be vigilant. There still is a need to be ready and vigilant. To flee from bondage as soon as the Lord allows you don't stay in your sin and captivity any longer than you have to. Amen? You run from it. You flee from it. You get out, as the scriptures say. This is a ceremonial meal. This is all designed for them to, to remember. Even the way the meal's prepared and completely consumed is an act of faithfulness to the Lord. It's a way of saying we're not taking this lamb for granted. It's life died. We're not going to waste the sacrifice. That's what he's saying. Even by roasting it over the fire and burning the remains, the symbolic nature of the smoke rising implied that this was also a sacrifice unto the Lord shared with his people. It was acceptable and that they were accepted. Do you see the fellowship? You can imagine God here with the smoke coming up, him going, it smells good. 
My people are accepted as pleasing unto the Lord. Verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened and your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, ready to go. And you shall eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover, which, by the way, that word for Passover in Hebrew literally means protection. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, lowercase g, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh, the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood on the wooden posts, the doorway to every home, covering, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you or destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt, now, the idea of the firstborn is, is easily lost on us today. But for the ancients, the firstborn represented their hopes and their dreams. The firstborn was the heir of all they had and all of their blessings. All that was both good and bad was passed down to the firstborn son. That's important. Because as we'll see, God makes it clear that the firstborn son of all humanity carries a debt requiring redemption. That debt was the debt passed down to the firstborn, and it was the debt a sin debt of all the generations preceding. And so it's why later that the first to open the womb uh, required a payment of redemption. And also why God tells Moses in Exodus 13:2, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. It's a picture of the future. It's a picture of your prosperity. It's a picture of your flourishing and what gets passed on. And so the firstborn was a representation of the impact you'd leave upon the world, your legacy, your fruit. And the point of this final plague here was very clear. A life is needed to cover your sin because the wages of sin is death and you're all guilty. The firstborn, all of them, guilty because you're guilty. And I want you to notice, this isn't about class. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about status. It's not like, well, your family deserves death, but mine doesn't. No, it's clear. That's not the case. Everybody, both Egyptians and Israelites, are guilty. And for this one night, the veil is lifted. God's merciful covering is pulled back, and the just destruction is going to be visited on every home equally. The only thing that separates, the only thing that covers, the only thing that protects is the blood of the Lamb received by an active faith. We then read at midnight, God did as he said he would. From the, it says from the dungeons to Pharaoh's palace. That means everybody. Exodus 12, verse 30. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was not a house where someone was not dead. So in the middle of the night, get the imagery, a very broken Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and tells them to be gone with all their people and livestock and everything they'd ask for and even asks them to bless him. Again, there's this desperation. There's, this is a broken Pharaoh. All the Egyptians also were urgent to send them out, it says. They're afraid for their own lives. They're like, get out of here. And so in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, after 430 years of captivity, 
That's enough to lull you to sleep, don't you think? 430 years, and in the twinkling of an eye, they were released by the blood of the Lamb and the death of the firstborn. So they left in the night, taking their dough before it was leavened, 600,000 men on foot, plus women and children and livestock. That would surge into the millions. That's how many people left. Get that imagery. You ever seen that many people in one place? It's a lot. Okay? This was a mass exodus. Okay? Exodus 12, verse 42. Final passage. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So after hundreds of years enslaved, it would have seemed like God was slow to move, but his deliverance came in the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, in a moment. And God tells them to remember what happened and the way it happened. But as they look back, they're also looking forward to it happening again, but in a much bigger and more ultimate and even global way. See, this Passover event was a part of a much bigger story. It didn't begin here. It was simply one more step in the redemptive plan. The idea of a sacrificial lamb to cover the sins of the firstborn heir was also not new. Back in Genesis, God has entered into covenant with a man named Abraham, and he promises to bless the whole world through his son, promised son, Isaac. But then in chapter 22, God, you remember this? God calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Now, now, Abraham wouldn't have thought this is because God's so mean. Why is God so mean? That would have never even like crossed his mind. You know what he would have thought and recognized? It's a righteous judgment because of my sin visited on my son. Because he's the heir. He's the promise. It's not Isaac's fault. It's not God's fault. It's my fault. That's how Abraham would have seen that. The debt of sin now hung over his promised son Isaac. And God was calling in the debt. And Abraham faithfully trusting still in God's goodness. He obeys. But before he's able to kill Isaac, God says, stop. And he points to a ram, a fully mature lamb. And this, this ram is caught by his horns, which represent power, in a thicket of thorns. And God tells Abraham to replace his son with this sacrifice. One lamb for one man. And then fast forward to Exodus 12, which we just read, and we see God's covenant people faithfully covered under the blood of the lamb, one lamb for one family. And then fast forward again, and while Israel's in the wilderness, which we're about to get into, God tells them to sacrifice one lamb for the entire nation of Israel on what has become known as the annual day of atonement. One lamb for one nation. We've got one lamb for one man. We've got one lamb for one family. We've then got one lamb for one nation. Do you see the progress? Over the years, God fully establishes the sacrificial system in his covenant nation, and they build a temple on Mount Zion, and they, it's in Jerusalem, and each year, the Jer Jerusalem swells into the millions with families traveling to sacrifice their Passover lambs in this temple for the sins of their family during this feast known as Passover. And around 2,000 years after God entered into a covenant with Abraham, a man would show up in Israel, a man introduced by John the Baptist in John 1.29, saying, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. About three years later, Jesus, the Lamb of God, would arrive in Jerusalem along with millions of Israelites for this feast of Passover. He would then preside over a Passover meal with his disciples, and normally the head of the household would preside over this Passover meal, and they'd stand up and they would describe each element of this meal, reminding everyone of what God had done in Exodus and how he delivered them from their sin. Normally they'd stand up and and they'd hold up the unleavened bread and they'd say something like, this is the bread of affliction our ancestors suffered in the wilderness so that we can be free. Eat this in remembrance. But on this night, The night before Jesus was crucified, he holds up unleavened bread, and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take of it and eat and do this in remembrance of me. It's always been about Jesus. He is the bread of life. It's the bread of his affliction that has brought us all ultimate freedom from sin and death. He then held up the wine, which represented the protective blood of the sacrificial lamb, which covered each family's doorway. But instead of calling that night into remembrance in Exodus, Jesus again said, this is my blood poured out for you. Take of it and drink and do this in remembrance of me. You know how confused those disciples would have been at that point? Jesus was saying, this was always about what I'm about to do for you. Now you might say, well, how can you have a Passover meal without the lamb? Good question. The lamb was present that night. Jesus himself was the lamb, is the lamb of God. And listen to me, guys. The disciples, when they would then leave, and they'd spend the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. And they spent the night at the Mount of Olives, at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And Jesus would pray, and he'd call his disciples into urgent prayer all night long. Stay awake, because soon the soldiers are going to come. They're going to arrest Jesus. He would then be tried that night, late at night, slash early morning, in a kangaroo court. He'd be beaten. He'd be hung on a cross the next day. And then all that day, all that day, The estimates are that that Friday, about 225,000 lambs were being slaughtered in the temple as Jesus hung on that cross. Millions of people bringing their sacrificial lambs to cover the sins of their families into the altar as he is overlooking Mount Zion on a cross, the Lamb of God and the blood of Jesus streaming down that old wooden cross overlooking the temple that was always pointing to him. All of it has always been about Jesus. And he has come that you may have abundant life. This is the gospel, that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live And he died the death we deserved to die. It was foreshadowed, prefigured, prophetically pointing through the lambs in the Old Testament. He conquered death in the grave then, through the resurrection. And he paved the way to eternal life with God the Father. He covered and conquered sin. And he provided the way for the Spirit of God to then 
just infuse and enter his people. You now become the very temple of God with the presence of his spirit in you, transforming you from the inside out, walking in relationship with him in his power, by his presence, for his purpose. This is what Christianity is and always has been. And so, John 3.16, I want you to hear this. You hear it all the time, and I'm wrapping up here. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. The language there is actually, in this way, God loved the world. This is the way that God loves the world. It's just been articulated. One lamb for one man, one family, one nation. Now the world, it's all been the same way. What is that way? He gave his only son. And who is that son? The lamb of God. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Everybody, everybody stands condemned outside of what he has done. And this is the judgment to bring this full circle. Verse 19 The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It's a heart issue. It's here. There's plenty of this, guys. It's here. Do you see how sovereign and good he is? You think people just made this up? The question is, do you trust your life to him? Will you? Entrust your life to him today. It may be that you have a bias, like you don't want it to be true. It may be this morning that you're saying, God, I believe, help my unbelief. Give me the grace to face my own rebellion and sin. Because you've rescued me from it. And I no longer want it, but I need your help. This is where Real faith begins. Let him show you how good and trustworthy he actually is. And guys, this is a lifelong journey. (laughs) Now, it's easy to hear this and, and think sin no longer matters because it's covered. But if that's what you're hearing, you're not paying attention. I want you to realize, and yes, I am going to take a couple minutes here. But I want I want you to lean in on this one. Sin still has very real consequences. Indulging in sin plays a direct role in the dulling of your desire for more of him. It deadens your heart of worship and to the things that matter most. Even if you've been rescued from it, sin's consequences on us harden our hearts to the things that God loves and to the things of his spirit. And it opens the door then to these insecurities and even to judgmentalism and to pride and shame and then offense. Again, the question really is, do you believe he loves you? Do you believe he desires good for you even more than you do? Do you trust him? And even more importantly, do you trust in him? 